Okay, Bertrand Tate, thanks for agreeing to talk to CounterPoint today. Um, Bertrand is Professor of Cultural History at Manchester University, uh, Director and Founder of the Humanitarian and Conflict Response Institute at Manchester. He has written Cultural Histories of the Franco-Prussian War and Paris Commune. Uh, he's written on Walter Benjamin's Arcades Project. And his most recent book is The Killer Trail, A Colonial Scandal in the Heart of Africa. Uh, Bertrand, can you, can you tell us a bit about yourself, your current interests? Well, I, I came to the United Kingdom as a PhD student and then I got a postdoc and lectureship and a chair, so I stayed in, in the UK, um, in Manchester, ironically, because I never intended to stay in Manchester, but it, it's all worked out very well. Now, over the last uh, three years, we've developed a new um, research agenda between a number of colleagues from the social sciences, anthropologists, historians, um, sociologists, politics and medics. And I think the novelty here is that we brought together, if you want, the medical and the humanities into one big research institute which counts about um, 12 people working at, on different projects. This is called the Humanitarian and Conflict Response Institute. Its director is uh, Dr. Ronnie Broman, who was um, the man who turned Médecins Sans Frontières from a very small and rather ineffectual organization into the largest medical NGO in uh, Europe. And uh, we have created, if you want, a dynamic between the human sciences and the medical uh, sciences. We've developed a research agenda which is responsive as well as um, programmatic. So in other words, we're interested, for example, in um, how people have assessed the situation in Darfur, on the one hand, but we're also interested in what is coming out of the recent situation in Haiti and how we could explore that from the point of view of the human sciences as well as the medical ones. Okay, and um, to start from the ground up, it's been said that humanitarianism is a relationship that links two human creatures. Um, that's from Emanuele uh, of yeah. Medicine and Frontier. Um, when, when you say humanitarianism, what do you mean, i.e. what sort of phenomenon is it? It's, it's a historical phenomenon, and it's a very interesting one. The deba you could debate how far back do you go in time. I think you, you should argue that humanitarianism, that is the ideal of uh, rescuing or bringing help practical, medical, spiritual sometimes, uh, help to victims of a disaster, a war, or uh, different types of situations that may arise, uh, is, is quite ancient. But in effect, it, it isn't, because you're really talking about a very abstract situation. You're actually thinking about people you didn't know existed, from a place you often um, ignored entirely. And people are going to be motivated by their situation, by their plight, to, to, to give. So you could argue that this is really a 19th century, 20th century phenomenon. You need the press, you need the media, you need ways of communicating what is taking place a long way away to people at home, if you want. So there is, humanitarianism is, is predicated on this use of the media, on communication. And there are some very technical things. For example, money has to circulate. Money has to go from one place in one part of the world to another place in another part of the world. Knowledge has to be um, evolving in one situation and transferred to another situation. So in other words, humanitarianism as a, as a history 
it really begins in the mid 19th century, possibly with the Crimean War, when the British, the French and the Turks attacked uh, Russian um, Sebastopol. Possibly later than that with the Geneva Convention of 1864. Possibly, we can discuss if you want, we can debate, it's not that interesting. Can debate the, the exact uh, birth date of the movement. But what is fascinating is when it is born, it is born with notions of rights, ideals of rights. Um, it's linked to a discourse on human rights. It's also linked to an a very generous ideal, but it's also very limited in the sense that a lot of humanitarian aid has a singular mission, which is to help people in a particular situation. So it isn't about solving the problems of the world, it is about saving a few lives. And I think we, that's the big difference, say, for example, with a, a developmentalist agenda. There's this interesting confluence of the, the theory of the emotion, or in fact, kind of norms of emotional response, yeah. uh, but also, um, as you say, it's far away, it's about distance. It's an enlargement of, a, of the community of interest. It is. Um, would you say that there's any sense in which you can say that humans are hardwired to respond in this sense? It's a very good question. I think uh, I'll be a bit more cynical in a sense. On the one hand, it is a, a widening, a broadening of charitable situations. In, in traditional societies, you help the needy, the people you know, the people you may witness suffering. In the humanitarian context, you do not witness them suffering. You, you're actually having that witnessing done for you on your behalf by usually the media. So there's an element of spectacle, I'm afraid, that creeps in there. And very early on, the media take a very keen interest in humanitarian aid. And to the point that the humanitarian and the media sometimes are so mixed up as to become difficult to disentangle. In other words, some humanitarian workers may look like media actors rather than actual relief workers. And the media sometimes fantasizes itself as a non-governmental organization. So you have, on the one hand, as early as 1870, newspapers organizing hospitals, partially because it's good copy. It gave them material to fill up their pages. It gave them pathos. But what is fascinating, and you're right, there's something very interesting here, it, it is that this pathos actually rings true. People feel an urge to respond to this, and they engage with it, and they will go a great length. They will give money, time, and a lot of themselves. So are we hardwired? I'm, not, I'm a historian. I, I tend to reject biological definitions. It's very clear to me that uh, pre-modern societies have an extraordinarily extensive network of charitable work, but that it is very often confined to the boundaries of the community. Modern humanitarianism transcends the boundaries of the community, or rather expands the boundaries of the community. Not always. There are some people who remain undeserving of help. So the idea of uh, a general entitlement doesn't exist. But on the whole, there is a, a sense that there is a globality, a global citizenship at work there. Whether it's biological, um, no, I don't, I, I'm not entirely convinced that it is. There are some people who will never actually um, give, contribute, or be interested in humanitarian sufferings or humanitarian work. So if, if everybody is hardwired, that would make them pathological. 
and uh, that's a significant proportion of the population. So that would be quite a, 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 a worrying <laughs> symptom, I think. Okay, <laughs> okay there's several uh, things in there that I want to kind of draw out. Um, and I think we can return to the, to the idea that there is no kind of general entitlement to, to this um, giving. Uh, but in terms of a global citizenship and, and, and the idea of citizenship, do you think in the latter 20th century, with, um, at the same time as uh, humanitarian intervention became problematic and problematized, also you had this burgeoning of the um, global civil society, as, as it's been known, and the NGO sphere. Do you think, and this isn't a kind of optimistic question, that this prefigures at all a move towards cosmopolitanism and this kind of engagement? Well, you, you could argue it, it is, and it's fa quite fascinating if you, if you actually, this is a subject that we're actually uh, exploring in our NAMI course that we, we have developed in Manchester um, in the Humanitarian Conflict Response Institute. I'm doing a little plug-in here. But um, it's a fascinating topic because you find that NGOs, first of all, they're not called NGOs for most of that period. And there is a very bizarre definition in NGO because an NGO is, is some defined negatively. It's something that is non-governmental which A, is often not true because many NGOs are actually defined, are funded by governments, and B, very often um, these NGOs have uh, other forms of existence that predate, if you want, their current existence. So if you go back in time, what makes me a bit skeptical as to a new dawn of mankind, um, and you know I'm a skeptical type, um, <laughs> is that a lot of charitable work has been in existence for a very long time and if you want a lot of what we may call NGO work was available uh, in a different guise in the early 19th century early 20th century so for example missionaries uh, missionaries often had dispensaries hospitals often responded to catastrophes by raising funds and bringing relief very often to the, the perfect innocent victims orphans predominantly it still is an, uh, an obsession of NGOs today, the orphans, the, the sort of innocence incarnate. Mm. Um, so you find that there, 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 uh, there is probably more going on at the earlier part, in the earlier part than we've actually figured out yet. A lot of history remains to be written for that early phase of humanitarianism. But where you're right is that in the last, since about 1968, there is a new wave of humanitarian uh, aid. And a multiplicity of a, a general, you know, efflorescence of NGOs, um, which spe very specialized for many of them, some of them very generalist, some of them very religious. And in fact, religion retains an enormous role in humanitarian work, to an extraordinary degree. We tend to imagine our societies as being very secular, but all the leading NGOs in the West, with a few exceptions, such as Médecins Sans Frontières, tend to have a religious base or religious root. And you could argue that even MSF, a lot of volunteers are religiously motivated. So is it, if in other words, what I'm saying is that it isn't necessarily a new citizenship, a new um, uh, belief system around rights and secular values that's triumphing through humanitarian work. It may be an old one, which is based on love, charity, and duty to God. And in a bizarre situation, it could be another example of a return to the spiritual. So I, am, I, I'm, I think the jury is out, basically. And uh, I am not optimistic 
that uh, new cosmopolitanism is emerging. But it is important to note that humanitarian agencies, NGOs, were there in the United Nations at its creation. Hundreds of them were there at the very beginning. They were there in its predecessor, in the League of Nations. They are immensely connected to every international body like this. So in other words, the world of, the world of humanitarian relief has always been feeding and influencing and shaping the norms of international affairs. And I think that's, very, uh, that's an important point that maybe I'll pick up later, but it is that humanitarian NGOs are norm shifters. They actually change the environment in which they operate. Mm. Okay, picking up on that then, uh, at the same time as they've been at the heart of the supranational, the kind of very noble internationalizing efforts, humanitarianism has uh, a kind of entwined history with colonialism yeah. and uh, which is both interesting and problematic how far do you think the norms of the two interact and shape each other okay that's a very interesting question because uh, you're right uh, humanitarian workers um, humanitarian organization missionaries for example uh, found a very fertile ground in the colonial empires and um, there isn't a single piece of land in the world which hasn't been visited by a missionary and very often a colonial administrator. So you're, you're absolutely correct, there is a, a, a linkage. However, to say that a link doesn't mean that it's synonymous. So in other words, colonial empires and humanitarian relief have uh, um, part of their journey in common but not the whole journey. And a lot of the critique, the, the, the fiercest critiques of uh, colonialism came from what you may call humanitarian workers. For example, in Congo, the missionaries denounced the atrocities committed by the men working on behalf of the king of the Belgians. And th the scandal broke because these people could not be silenced, those missionaries. In other words, they were denouncing colonialism, although they were also obviously part of the project. Now, since decolonization, since 19, the 1960s onwards, you could argue that two things have happened. The first one is that undoubtedly there is a neo-colonial attitude still at work in some NGOs and in some contexts. I would say that's much weaker for the last 20 years. Partially because if you looked at the, the largest NGOs in the world, they're no longer Western. And I think that's a very important point to make, is that a lot of great humanitarian organizations are not Western they actually come from countries such as Indonesia or in India or indeed increasingly China or, in, or the Arab world. So we have to be a bit less Eurocentric about this. These things undoubtedly were more developed earlier in the Euro-American Euro sphere, but for the last 30, 40 years there's been a considerable rise of Muslim uh, NGOs, for example, doing some extraordinary work um, of um, Buddhist NGOs, of NGOs or even secular ones coming from um, non-Western contexts. So in other words, the story is, is different. What's interesting, however, is that some of the norms that were developed in Geneva by the International Red Cross, and it's worth remembering that the Red Cross um, actually started to exist not only in Europe, but in Japan very early on. So J Japanese Red Cross is a very early Red Cross. So even at the, the onset, even in the 19th century, there is an internationalization, if you want, 
of humanitarian aid in the Turk in the Ottoman Empire you've got the Red Crescent so you, you have all these these organizations that are non-western that appear fairly early on and the Red Cross nevertheless mostly dominated by in the West based in Geneva define undoubtedly the sort of cardinal rules of humanitarian neutrality for instance which are which have served as the norm and are shaping if you want the norm of good governance for uh, humanitarian organizations okay yeah that, that's interesting because it kind of dispels what what might actually be a slightly paranoid uh, critique where you would return to the to the kind of um, the worrying specter of the West rolling out a kind of supposedly universal set of the kind of understandings and activities when in fact it's much more um, it's more complex it's much more complex than that yeah um, I mean a, a good example of that is that the tsunami in Bandache. Um, it's very clear that a lot of money was raised in the West because the tsunami was taking place in the, you know, the swimming pool of the West. You know, people were, you, uh, were familiar with thinking of Thailand as a, a holiday destination. They could see people bathing and suddenly being drowned. So there, there is this sudden emotional response to your kins being victims a long way away. But actually, the relief on the ground, the most effective relief on the ground, was often distributed by local NGOs. So Western money, local NGOs, and local NGOs who have uh, greater control of um, what can be done and with whom. And you know, they're not only gatekeepers, they're actually much more effective. And I think that's, that's a very important message uh, that came out of uh, the, the tsunami disaster. And I think it's a message that you find over and over again. So let's not be, we don't need to be paranoid because in effect the West um, no longer has the means of its colonial uh, fantasies, luckily, or uh, is considerably diminished. And also because um, genuinely at NGO level, a lot of collaboration has been taking place and is taking place. So it's, it's rather more complex than that. And being paranoid about humanitarianism. Um, doesn't address the real problems that humanitarianism does have. Certainly. Would you say that one of those problems is uh, the, the, the play of identity which comes along with cultures essentially interacting but not on a level playing field uh, mm -hmm. because the one is the, the giver, the, the, the one is receiving essentially, yeah. So the, the, the problem of the gift, yes. So that's the anthropology. We're going back to a big question, which is what happens when you give and that you receive? You know, there is a very unequal power relation. Yeah, that's, that's what you were driving at. Um, it, it's, well, it's, it's a very interesting question because, of course, it it's, can be politicized. It can be militarized. The recent, if you want, uh, intervention in Haiti is an example of literally a military invasion, a pacific one, um, with probably the best intentions, but nevertheless a, a mass arrival of armed forces in, in, a, in, a, in a country. So interventions always carry an element of uh, suspicion on the part of the recipients. The recipients do wonder, why are you here? Sometimes, and this is a very interesting debate, because at the moment there's a, there's a considerable interrogation about motivations, and um, one wonders whether religious charities have actually got an, early, a, a, an easier task, because they can basically quite rightly say that they do it because of a religious duty, when secular ones 
have to explain that they're doing it because of the love of mankind, which is much more abstract and, and sometimes more complex to, to, to convey. It's, there's also a lot of work being done, and since the work is being done, so there are no conclusions in a sense. The work is also being done about how humanitarian aid is received and how um, recipients distinguish between one agency and another. And it's very clear that in many situations, they don't distinguish. In other words, they cannot see much difference between um, a major secular NGO, a major religious one, or even the military. And that creates very difficult and potentially dangerous situations because the recipients may actually feel um, that they are physically invaded. Now, if you combine humanitarian aid with actual military presence, for example, Iraq, uh, you find that the situation is created where the confusion arises, and especially when the military start defending the humanitarians, in which case uh, a humanitarian compound starts to look like a military one and becomes the target. So, so it, it's, uh, it creates all sorts of tensions around uh, security on the one hand, and of course uh, sovereignty on the other. Would you say that particular um, concepts of the self and how it relates to other selves um, uh, kind of back up uh, different versions of humanitarianism, i.e. you have uh, the Christian duty to the other uh, uh, in terms of self-sacrifice, but also the more stoic understanding of concentric cir circles of uh, community and selves that you would have concern for. Do these both come into play? Well, uh, I think I'll go a bit further than that. I think, yes, I agree. I mean, there is a Christian notion of, of uh, charitable duty. There's a, a, con a Christian concept of, of sacrifice and the, redemption, the redemptive value of sacrifice. And that's a very important uh, aspect. In Islam, there's, of course, a charitable imperative, which is uh, one of the essential tenets of the religion. So every, a lot of, at least a lot of the, the, the monotheistic religions have, have this sort of concept at heart. But in humanitarianism, you've got um, a complex um, picture emerging around the idea of the victim, and that's part, partly a problem for humanitarianism, because the victim... Um, can be represented in uh, in different ways. There is the victim as as helpless, the victim as passive, the victim as lacking resilience. All things that are prejudiced against the people who are actually in suffering terribly. So we, you've got this uh, this ideology which is predicated to an extent around notions of um, passivity, helplessness. Um, uh, innocence to a degree. Now, the, the point is people don't change just because their life has been altered dramatically. They are neither helpless nor passive. They, they have agency. They, they have a desire to live. They have a desire to do things. And it's only fairly recently that, um, you, I'm saying recently in the last 25 years if you want, that humanitarian agencies are, have started to get much more involved in uh, looking at resilience, looking at what people do for themselves and how they, their sense of self is actually crucial. In other words, that humanitarian aid can uh, dispossess people, can literally um, make them feel vulnerable, more vulnerable than they're, in, they're meant to be. So I think it's we've got here something that is uh, potentially poisonous in the relationship between humanitarian aid and 
the people they come to relieve. I'm glad to say that most of that has been taken on board for a long time now and that these discussions have been going on. And that uh, if you want, the ideas of the self are more sophisticated. People are far more um, aware of cultural differences and, and the subtle differences that emerges culturally. And that uh, you shouldn't take for granted that the person you come to help is like you necessarily, but you should take it for granted that they are as good as you. So, could you, in, in, in that sense, say that humanitarianism, after this period of critique, really, self critique, it is now more a way of being together and thinking, thinking cross culturally uh, in terms of how people are relating to each other. Uh, uh, rather than functioning as it might have unwittingly let's say but still functioning to, to make people separate and to uh, differentiate yeah. hierarchies well I think okay there's still some way to go okay um, um, and the picture is complex and you're talking about uh, a huge economy the humanitarian economy is trillions of dollars it's absolutely it's vast you're talking about tens of thousands of organizations so you c it's difficult to to uh, to reduce everything and talk about the humanitarian agencies or humanitarianism in the abstract like that. But I would say the questions are out there and there are a lot of people who presented fierce criticisms of humanitarian aid, of humanitarian workers, of humanitarian organizations. And some of these criticisms were perfectly valid and humanitarian workers and organizations have responded to them intelligently by engaging with universities, by engaging with uh, the world of politics by revising the debate, by, by being much more sophisticated. And I think this is where perhaps an organization like the British Council plays a role because it enables bridges to be built between a number of actors and it is a good site for communication. Excellent. Thanks very much. Uh, You're very welcome, Jenny.